0: Welcome to Hitting Play, the podcast where we review, analyze, and discuss shows, movies, and other curiosities. I am Scott, and joining me on the Hitting Play hotline is someone technologically advanced enough to use the phone, Steve. Steve, welcome back. Why why do you hate this show so much?
1: (laughs) I just have fun torturing you. (laughs) (laughs) This week, though, I think I, I, I outdid myself, and I think I tortured both of us.
0: Oh, yes, definitely. Yes, this week we watched the premiere episode of Battlestar Galactica, but not not the one that everybody knows and loves. Actually, Battlestar Galactica 1980, or just Galactica 1980 as the title card in the show reads. Uh, for those that don't know, it was actually the very short-lived, low-budget reboot of the original Battlestar Galactica franchise.
1: Oh, but believe it or not, it was not low-budget at all. Really? Really, it was one of the most expensive programs to put on the air.
0: you got to be kidding me.
1: Uh, the original Battlestar Galactica from the uh, late 1970s itself was, at the time, the most expensive program ever produced. Mm-hmm. And, and apparently when they uh, made the show, the scenes from the bridge of the uh, Galactica was all you know, surplus equipment from NASA. Oh. Uh to to make it look, you know, realistic. So that was a very high budget show, but uh but Galactic 1980, the the original uh reboot of the series turned out to be very expensive to uh to produce as well. though not not really necessarily because of uh special effects. Yeah, a lot of it had to do with uh just bloated costs and uh huge costs for script writing including bringing in last-minute script writers to write episodes and paying them you know, $10,000 per episode oh, wow. for, for multiple scripts for the same week, none of which they would use because the, uh, the head screenwriter, uh, Glenn Larson, kept control of it uh, all the way through. So, but <laughs> apparently it was just really a, a bloated production, that the costs were astronomical. Um,
0: no pun intended.
1: <laughs> it's no pun intended. Um, in fact, production costs ran at about $1.2 to $1.5 million per episode.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: For, for which ABC only paid six to 700000 per episode, apparently by contract, leaving Universal, uh, the studio that produced it, leaving them on the hook for anywhere between half a million to almost a million dollars per
0: show wow yeah that is amazing i mean literally in the opening sequence they blow up a beach ball it is the stupidest special effect i i only assumed this this had to be low budget
1: this was a very expensive oh and, and that that exploding beach ball that was from the
0: original ah uh, okay
1: so that was an expensive special effect
0: wow that's that that... an
1: expensive beach ball
0: that's amazing
1: Yes. I have a feeling that, that apparently this week our, our uh, research didn't overlap very much.
0: No, it did not, I don't think.
1: And I believe that the revelations that we're going to be making to each other about this program will will leave us each uh, successively. I, I believe the, the British term for it is gobsmacked. <laughs> <laughs> I believe this was the first one.
0: Oh, blimey
1: is so horrible. It's going to be so much fun.
0: Oh, yes. So the episode that we watched this week was the premiere episode uh, entitled Galactica Discovers Earth Part 1. It it was actually the first part of a three-part story arc to start the series. Uh, It doesn't really matter. Well, yeah, of course. But we'll we'll, we'll catch everybody up on Parts 2 and 3. Don't worry about that. But for this, we just... Primarily watched part one, our, our complete introduction into the series. Uh, it was written by the show's creator, the aforementioned Glenn A. Larson, and directed by Sidney Hares. He was a, uh, a TV veteran when it came to directing. I, I, he did a lot of shows of the time, uh, especially ones like uh, Magnum P.I., you know, any show like that, he definitely uh, had a hand in. Uh, it aired on ABC. It lasted for only 10 episodes from January 27th, 1980, to May 4th, 1980. And you can see with, with them being only a couple of weeks into the new decade, they really want to use that year in the title. You know, It makes it sound really futuristic.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Little did they know that they, they were really uh, putting limits on this show. It started in 1980. It ended in 1980. Yeah, yeah. In fact, in fact after 10 episodes, uh, the programs that they did were, were all uh pretty much uh, multi episode stories or or story arcs which was kind of innovative for, for that time mm-hmm. but it ended really with the uh, first episode of of a story arc and uh then went into a repeat through the summer and then in august it was ultimately it was ultimately canceled and replaced with and I am not making this up repeats of fantasy island <laughs> <laughs> That's the Island second run.
2: <laughs>
0: oh my
1: goodness. We're getting better ratings.
0: Now, you were mentioning that last episode. Now, from my, what I've read, the fans mostly kind of discard this whole series. Uh, the, they kind of view it as apocryphal to the whole overall storyline, except for the last episode. They, that's kind of the return of Starbuck. I believe that's the, the title of it. And that's where, uh, you know, the Starbuck actually returns and you kind of get some more story there.
1: Apparently he returns in flashback uh, as with him uh, being stranded on a on a desert planet and apparently that that is well regarded that episode uh, because it was written it was almost like a radio drama okay um, and it was as you say it was it was very well regarded of course you know from what had come before it, it really didn't have any viewers to notice it but <laughs> um, but the two or three people that saw it actually enjoyed it.
0: Now, for those that don't know, uh, basically, the premise of Battlestar Galactica uh, as a whole, the whole story, is that in the distant part of the universe, there's a a human civilization that inhabited a group of planets known as the Twelve Colonies. And uh, they've had this long war with this race of cybernetic beings called Cylons, and what was left of the humans after this, they fled in search of this legendary you know, 13th colony, which, of course, is the planet Earth. And so, now, Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the first original series was all about them kind of trying to make their way towards Earth?
1: Yes, exactly. It was after after the destruction of the colonies, the uh, the survivors of, of the attacks um, gathered in, in sort of uh, just, I believe they even described it as a ragtag fleet of ships with everybody packed on board to try and flee in hopes of finding uh, the 13th colony where they could find refuge and support against the uh, Cylon menace. Now, the interesting thing that, that when I was uh, thinking about this uh, today, it actually kind of harks back to an old myth or legend from the Middle Ages, really, the sort of uh, myth of uh, Prester John. The idea was that there was a somewhere in the east, uh, there was a Christian king or emperor, an Nestorian Christian, who had become a powerful emperor, but was completely separated from uh, from Europe and, and Western Christianity. And throughout the Crusades and, and even beyond, there was always this myth of almost a lost tribe uh, of a uh, Christian warrior king that that if they could contact Prester John, that he'd be able to provide relief against their enemies. So it just kind of echoes that as sort of a, uh, except with the survivors you know, fleeing to, to find uh, that, that protection. But I just thought that was kind of a parallel.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting parallel, but uh, I think you're giving Glenn A. Larson a little more credit than he deserves.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying that it's an actual antecedent, but I'm saying that it, it fits into a... a, a uh, story archetype. Sure, sure. Um, look, I'm reaching. Okay, right, I right, know right. I'm reaching. I'm trying to give it something. <laughs> Work with me here. Yeah,
0: <laughs> but sure. There's plenty of stories like that: the Fountain of Youth and El Dorado, and you know, there's uh, these mythological places. And uh, this, in this case, it actually is a, a real place. Earth. You are here. <laughs> it's sadly so. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And, and and I say that in the sense that one of the things that a number of the people who worked on the program uh, pinpointed as one of the really deadly flaws here in the whole show is that the show was about the fleet finding Earth in 1980, at which point you lose all interest in in it because it ceases to be really kind of science fiction setting. It becomes contemporary. Yeah. So it just kills the entire interest of the scenario. It's like, oh, okay, well, now everyone's going to be walking around Los Angeles. It, it's not quite the same.
0: Yeah, I mean, they've already reached their goal, and now most of the show is going to just be people walking around on Earth. I mean, it's like, I, I could not believe what this show turned into. It was amazing going into, into watching well, these episodes. Well,
1: apparently it apparently goes way downhill from here. Uh, because the uh, apparently the where it aired at seven o'clock on uh, Sunday evenings, that was really uh, considered family time programming. So the uh, so the network and, and standards and practices were insistent that you have to have more kids in this. You got to have lots of kids in. This. Oh, really? So they tried to pack the episodes with as many children as they could, which they said was a nightmare for production anyway. <laughs> But really, just kind of dumbs down the whole thing, and then on top of that, uh, again, standards and practices was on them about. Well, it's a show for kids; it's got to be educational. So you've got to have certain number of educational beats in the program. So a lot of the episodes, uh, I guess, the uh, the dialogue just would all of a sudden become really stilted as they had to, you know, spout off some fact about something. Hmm. It was. Something of an abomination.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, um, let's get right into this abomination. <laughs> Must we? <laughs> All right, so we open with the title Galactica 80 over this montage of action scenes with the uh, the opening credits. So, these were actually from the original Battlestar Galactica series. Okay, well, that makes much more sense because I'm waiting for that sports scene where they're playing some sort of futuristic basketball, and, uh, yeah, it never happened.
1: Sort of futuristic basketball and apparently their underwear.
0: Yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) So then we get these scenes of these really toy-looking spaceships uh, labeled Colonial Movers as we hear Lorne Green uh, reprising his role as uh, Commander Adama. And in voiceover, he's saying... The great ship Galactica, majestic and loving, strong and protective. Our home for these many years we've endured the wilderness of space, and now we near the end of our journey. Scouts of electronic surveillance confirm that we have reached our haven, that planet which is home to our ancestor brothers. Too many of our sons and daughters did not survive to share the fulfillment of our dream. We can only take comfort and find strength in that they did not die in vain. We have at last found earth. Now, a
1: couple of things on that. First of <laughs> all, loving. <laughs> well, I think there may be many things, but loving, I'm not sure about that. Yeah. Secondly, the uh the the, the bit about how many have died but haven't died in vain blah blah blah. is the is the most glib explanation for the fact that Well, the show had been cancelled, and by the time we decided to reboot it, everybody was already working on other projects and weren't available. So we killed off all but two members of the cast. Yeah. Over the three decades between the end of uh, Galactica and the beginning of Galactica 1980.
0: Yeah, and, and I should point out that Galactica 1980, this series, is supposed to be 30 years after the original series. Yes. And now, I believe the last episode of the first series ended with a transmission received of the moon landing. Yes. And so now we fast forward, and it's really not supposed to be 1980. It should be 1999. But that, but that slot was already taken by Martin Landau. <laughs> yes, please see our <laughs> earlier episode where we reviewed space 1999.
1: Which is really actually shaky compared to this.
0: So oh, true masterpiece.
1: It's <laughs> <laughs> starting to warm to Space 1999, aren't you? Admit
0: it. Oh, it so many more redeemable qualities than this. I, I missed those zippers up the sleeve already. So right away, I mean, the, the timeline is, is all messed up. You know, they really wanted to cram 1980 in there, so they just said, oh, yeah, 30 years ago, and uh, yeah, 1980. So it, it takes place in present-day Earth, which I'm sure helped with some of the uh, production costs.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Not. Now, the, the, the whole reason for the show, in fact, was that when the original program was canceled, it was uh, one of the first letter-writing campaigns to save the show. Yeah, from from its fans, which caught ABC unaware, and so they decided that well, they they needed to uh, to take advantage of this groundswell of support, but they didn't have anything ready to go, so they they needed to kind of slap something together to to take advantage of this groundswell of support, mm-hmm. and slap it together they did.
0: Oh yes. <laughs> We then see Earth at a distance as they approach. And now Adama is called into a room where a teenage prodigy named Dr. Z alerts him to disturbing transmissions from Earth. And now we start to see various clips being displayed on a view screen, uh, including uh, there's a demolition derby. uh, There's a horror movie, a scene from a Western. There's scenes from a cop show. uh, We see Rod Serling, a clip of Woody Woodpecker. Uh, There's also some skydivers, a hula dancer, a surfer, and and a guy on a motorcycle jumping through a flaming hoop. And uh, so now Dr. Z says, in so many words, that they have searched for Earth and aid in defeating their Cylon enemies, but these clips, they prove that Earth is not scientifically advanced to help them, and they cannot land there.
1: I wonder if his opinion would have been shifted at all if they had included any Brady Bunch clips in
0: (laughs) there. Well, we'll get into Dr. Zeno in in a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) So, Commander Adama is very disappointed in this news. You know, they traveled all this way, they actually did find Earth, it does exist, and now he finds out they can't land. So, he asks how he can possibly break this to all of the people that have survived and made this long journey. You know, after all that they've gone through, they're finally within reach of Earth. But Dr. Z coldly tells him that their enemies, the Cylons, are also within reach of Earth as well. And even though they haven't detected a Cylon threat for what they call a billion star miles, they simply did not want it to be known that they were there. And uh, evidently, they were in some sort of quiet pursuit uh, as a way of being led to the last remaining humans. You know, they were hot on their trail, and they figured, well, we'll just let uh, the colonial movers lead us to the last remaining humans. And, of course, Z doesn't break the news until just now. Uh,
1: now, I, I'm glad that you picked up, though, on these star miles. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, that's that's one, of the, one of the things that really comes up time and time and time again in bad science fiction. The idea that you just put space or star or <laughs> Earth in front of a noun. Yes. And now somehow it's, it's something cosmic.
0: Right, right, exactly.
1: There are no star miles. There are miles or... <laughs>
0: but, but there are no star miles. Right. So uh, so now Adama, a very dramatic moment here. He sh- he's shocked and dismayed upon hearing this and says, What have I done? I led them here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is a feeling, incidentally, uh, that, ca- that captures the feelings of, uh, I think, most of the production crew on the <laughs> show.
0: Okay, now, now Steve, I know you've been waiting for this. Let's take a moment here to talk about this character of Dr. Z. Not no, uh, Dr. Z. Now, when you first proposed that we cover this show, uh, you described it as a Battlestar Galactica, but revamped with a Cousin Oliver type of character. And, and then for, the, yes. for those who don't know, I should explain that Cousin Oliver was this little boy with blonde hair and glasses, uh, played by Robbie Rist, who was added towards the end of the run of the Brady Bunch because they, I guess, they felt the younger kids weren't cute enough anymore, and they could no longer be loved by a television audience. So,
2: yes, yeah, uh, so
1: basically a precocious kid with uh, with blonde hair and a bowl cut. Yes, and with uh, with glasses. And and this type, this particular type, shows up repeatedly in things from the seventies: precocious bowl cut blonde boy. And it's just ubiquitously obnoxious, just <laughs> disliked by everybody, first hated with the prototype of Cousin Oliver on the Brady Bunch, and I believe when I mentioned Dr. Z, I like you said, I pointed out this trend in, in 1970s entertainment, and said,
0: this kid, it's like Cousin Oliver. Yeah, it's like a Cousin Oliver joined Battlestar Galactica to reinvigorate the franchise. And, and this has been done, too, on many other shows, even going into the 90s. Not so much the blonde-haired boy, but just adding younger kids when the youngest ones kind of grow up. So they kind of just replace it so there's there's kids that uh, the audience will find cute. I mean, I was going back, like, Raven Simone was added to The Cosby Show. And a kid named Brian Bonsall was added to Family Ties. But, I mean, even Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Growing Pains, Married with Children, uh, even Full House brought another pair of twins to take the place of Michelle, played by the Olsen twins, when they felt that she got too old. And so they wanted more babies on the show again. So it's just done time and time again, but it it all kind of goes back to this cousin Oliver that uh, you know replaced uh, Cindy and Bobby Brady as, the, as the, the young, precocious characters of the show. Yes. Okay, so now as I began watching this episode for the podcast... I'm looking at the credits, and to my surprise, Robbie Wrist is on the show. And I came to the shocking realization that not only did Galactica 1980 get a Cousin Oliver, they got THE Cousin Oliver. (laughs) Color me
1: gobsmacked.
0: Unbelievable. I'm, I'm like... I'm, am I reading this right? I had to go to IMDb. Uh, no, no.
1: <laughs> All I can think is this kid had taken a hostage. <laughs> he got way more work than he ever should have.
0: Uh, no, That's not taking anything away from Robbie Rist because if you now look at his IMDb page, he has tons of credits doing voiceover work, very prolific voice actor now, so good for him. And, you know, obviously it was a, it was a little kid, so what, what can you say? but it's just hilarious that yeah we need uh, we need a, a young child to reinvigorate the franchise uh, who do we have well, of course, you could bring cousin Oliver
1: <laughs> <laughs> because cousin Oliver represents in in the Battlestar Galactica universe a mental mutation that. <laughs> That's intellectually far superior to the rest of humanity, which is why he, at about the age of 15 or so, is telling Adama what to do and where to go. So he's really they have taken precocious and dialed it up a few more notches, apparently in the hopes that what made Cousin Oliver obnoxious was he wasn't precocious enough.
0: <laughs> There's that great scene where uh, Adama says, "You know, Doctor Z, did you break the space lamp?" No, I promise.
1: <laughs> well, apparently, he was not liked by. <laughs> he was not liked by some of the people in the production crew. Glenn Larson, uh, the screenwriter, when watching dailies from the production of the show, kept saying, "The kid doesn't move his head. Why doesn't he move his head?" <laughs> Apparently, the kid was terrified of him. It was just tense through the whole thing. Oh,
0: man. Make
1: the kid move his head. And the story editors on it, Chris Bunch and Alan Cole, apparently found it just incredibly amusing that his voice was actually cracking during the filming. Again, you know, sort of a callback to Brady Bunch, apparently.
0: It's time to change. It's time to rearrange. (laughs)
1: Exactly. (laughs) So, So he'd be... He'd be pronouncing these uh, these you know profound truths, and his voice would crack halfway through. Apparently, they just made fun of him the oh, whole time.
0: That's not right.
1: That's cousin Oliver. It is very right. It is how the universe is supposed to be.
0: <laughs> now, I did notice going through the show that there are two uh, child actors playing Doctor Z, and so Robbie Rist's run a- ended after this three-episode arc.
1: Oh, that is unfortunate.
0: <laughs> all right, so now going back to this episode, we cut to an exterior shot of a large ship where a small shuttle craft lands. And we cut inside where we see all of the people, you know, they're, they're living their day-to-day lives on board. We see families and children running around. Actually, tons of children, as you had mentioned. <laughs> they cram tons <laughs> of children in this. This is where we learn uh, in voiceover uh, Adama tells us that Dr. Z had been born to them in deep space uh, with uh, what they call a cerebra mutation that uh, made him this prodigy. And uh, his wisdom had delivered them from their enemies countless times. So uh, they trust him because, you know, he's, he's been right. So now Dr. Z is calling for an assembly of the Senior Warriors and Council. And as we see this, we now get Lieutenant Dillon, played by Barry Van Dyke. Son of the great Dick Van Dyke, as he makes his way through the corridors of the crowded ship, uh, shaking hands and, and greeting people. Very uh, very popular figure. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> All fans of the Dick Van Dyke show. Yeah, he did not trip over an Ottoman.
1: Y- your dad is great. <laughs> you? Eh.
0: <laughs> now, at one point, there's a crowd of children running around these bionic pets. What in the world is this?
1: I knew you would latch on to that. <laughs> those, those are... Well, in the original series, one of the characters that we're just about to meet, Troy, yes. who, who is the adoptive son of, uh, of Apollo Adama, who, when the refugees first fled the destruction of the colonies, his pet dog was killed in the Cylon attack, and he was in mourning. So to cheer him up, they made him a robotic dog. (laughs) Apparently, it had puppies.
0: Wow. (laughs) I mean, there there are people in those suits.
1: Oh, yes, there are people in the suits, but they're supposed to be just purely mechanical. They're they're mechanical dogs, and uh, you have to understand that one of the negative effects of, of Star Wars, Star Wars had a lot of great, Effects in popularizing science fiction, in you know really trailblazing special effects, but one of the real uh, negative effects of Star Wars was the idea that science fiction has to have something cute. Yeah, it's the R2D2 syndrome. <laughs> okay, you can have something cute,
0: preferably uh, mechanical. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You
1: can sort of anthropomorphize, or in this case. Anapromorphize, I suppose. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> it's got to be something
0: cute. Just picture uh, Kenny Baker instead of being inside of an R two D two suit, inside of a stuffed bear suit, doing the robot, and that's exactly what we have here. It's pretty awful. Okay, that's enough about these. I, I can't. I can't think <laughs> about them anymore. So, so Dylan now it, it finally reaches the quarters of Captain Troy played by Kent McCord of Adam-12 fame.
1: Yes. I When I was watching this, I thought, I recognize this guy. Where do I know him from? Yes, he played Officer Jim Reed, a role which he originated in Dragnet, played in Adam-12, and also carried over into one episode of Emergency.
0: Oh, wow, okay. Yes. Now, Dylan informs him... Of the meeting, and he's wanted aboard the Galactica. And, uh, you know, they wonder now is it true? Are we really going to land on Earth? And as Troy gets ready to leave, Dylan goes over and picks up this old photo and asks him why he used to be called Boxy. And Troy's just, oh, that's a nickname my parents gave me. And, you know, it's, I understand I was a little terror when I was younger. <laughs> so, Boxy was a child, is that correct, in the original Battlestar Galactica? Yes, he was. And so now they wanted, instead of, I don't know, why, why would they change his name to Captain Troy?
1: Because Boxy was a nickname, and Captain Boxy doesn't really inspire much confidence in, in the refugees. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, the these star
0: refugees. Star refugees, Are. yes. <laughs> so we next cut to the assembly where Adama is standing in front of this display screen before the group, and he describes Earth. Now, Doctor Z is kind of in the middle on this special elevated uh, chair on a pedestal, and there's uh, military leaders, other esteemed officials. They sit on either side of him in what look like simple black office chairs. Yes, they are. <laughs> you
1: have Doctor Z on all in clad in white on a throne, basically. Yeah. Uh, above them, with a spotlight
0: on him. Yeah, he's illuminated throughout all. Of yes. Those. Yeah. So Adama continues listing acts about the Earth, and at one point he mentions that seven-tenths of the Earth's surface is covered with water, and everyone turns to their neighbor It starts murmuring uncontrollably. <laughs> That's so stupid. This is, these are the, the facts that you were talking about. And uh, he goes on to say that 20% of the landmasses are uninhabited deserts and polar ice fields, but with their technology, they'd be able to reclaim them, so there's plenty of room for their people.
1: Which, which actually, when you think about it, given the message they're about to deliver, <laughs> just really, it's really just a cruel
0: taunt. Really? <laughs> so, unfortunately, there is some disquieting news, and from there, he turns the meeting over to Dr. Z. So, Dr. Z now shows the assembly North America on the display screen. He also shows them Los Angeles. And, uh, of course, now Dylan tr- turns to Troy as they're watching this, and he... It says, like, what's that odd-looking brown haze hanging over the city? And uh, Troy thinks, well, maybe it's some sort of defense shield. This was,
1: of course, before the Clean Air Act. <laughs> when smog in Los Angeles was the subject of most of uh, Johnny Carson's monologues, and there were actual smog alerts you know, on the local news telling you when it was safe to go out and not.
0: And we also learned during this presentation that it's currently the late 20th century. This is where they break the news to us. And as I mentioned, with the timing of the moon landing, it really does not make sense. Now, Dr. Z continues with the minutiae of showing them automobiles, which rely on primitive internal combustion engines, which burns a fuel called gasoline derived from matter that used to live upon the earth, blah, blah, blah. You know, Troy appreciates the formations of the automobile, saying that it must require practice and discipline. You know, really uh, making them strangers in a strange land. These, uh, you know, like, they're human, but they're aliens. And, you know, we'll get a lot more of this coming up. It's
1: it's a line of, well, humor that they mine very, very heavily throughout (laughs) the show.
0: Now, Dr. Z warns that what they are about to see next will alarm them, but he tells them to stay calm because it's intended to inform them. And so now... (laughs) we get this montage of Cylon ships attacking Los Angeles. Uh, we see a fleet of them flying past the Hollywood sign. We see lasers hitting the ground as people are running in a panic. Buildings on fire and buildings are crumbling. And as as this part of the presentation ends, we cut to this wide shot of the city where it is completely devastated.
1: An interesting thing about this uh, about this particular scene is that this was actually relatively inexpensive scene for them to put into the show. Because what the producers did for this is they recycled footage from from a movie called Earthquake yes. from nineteen seventy four. Superimposed <laughs> Cylon fighters firing and causing the destruction in the sequence. Thus they they managed to create a spectacular sequence of the destruction of Los Angeles on a tiny budget. Yeah. Saving more money for Script writers and armies of producers.
0: And <laughs> <In> brown jackets. <laughs> yes. I saw this, and I'm going, wow, okay, this is actually uh, pretty good. I mean, you could tell the buildings are models. You know, it's not, uh, you know, this is pre-CGI, of course. But, you know, buildings crumbling, and of course, you know, the Capitol Records building, which of course is in every L.A. disaster movie. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, and then I read, oh, this is just the movie Earthquake. And they just kind of stuck the Cylon attack over it. It, uh, yeah, it's hilarious. That uh, That's why it looked so good, is uh, it was done before.
1: They can thank Erwin
0: Allen. <laughs> Dr. Z now runs the footage backwards and explains that what they have just seen has not happened. Yet. It was merely a computer simulation of what would happen if they decided to land on Earth. Proving
1: two points at, at once. First point being that, well, they can't actually... Settle on Earth without bringing about its destruction. That's the first point. Second point being that Doctor Z is a bit of a jerk.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> Psych. Yeah. Really.
1: <laughs> what a jerk! And and I really edited myself there. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Uh, I kept it clean because I know, you know, 7 o'clock on Sunday is family hour, so.
0: Right, right. Standards and practices. (laughs) So, basically, since the Earth is practically defenseless and the Cylons are following them, if the Cylons see them landing on Earth, they'll know that's where the last remaining humans are, and then they'll begin an attack, an attack that looks just like what we saw. And from here, uh, Commander Xavier, played by Richard Lynch, now stands and asks, well, if we can't go forward and we can't go back, now what? D- do we just give up? And Dr. Z says, no, what, what they need to do is they just need time to bring Earth up to a level of technology in which they can help. Now, now
1: Xavier there, interestingly enough, was, was supposed to play a more central role in the, uh, in the reboot, mm-hmm. as was originally planned. It was supposed to uh, involve him traveling through time into Earth's past to make changes to the timeline to, to accelerate Earth's scientific advancement. And the idea was that originally that Apollo, who's not dead, uh, would travel back in time to fight Xavier and Starbuck, who's lost, would be uh, sort of his interlocutor with the present. And this idea the, uh, the network didn't like, and they, they shot it down early in the planning stages, forcing a reboot of the reboot. However, this did form the, the germ of the idea that later evolved into uh, Quantum Leap, which was also um, a project of uh, Glenn Larson.
0: Hmm. Very interesting. So, yeah, without Galactica 1980, there would be no Quantum Leap, which... Uh, arguably, was, uh, you know, I actually, inarguably, was a better and more successful series. <laughs> yeah, who's who's going to argue against that? Just remember Commander Xavier here. And, uh, yeah, not all of that story was completely scrapped, because uh, I'll inform you what happens after this episode.
1: In fairness and in full disclosure, I only watched the first 45 minutes of this. This, this was a multi-part pilot, and I stopped after the first part. When I got to... <laughs> To be continued, I felt I had paid my dues.
0: <laughs> you certainly did, but uh, the show must go on.
1: <laughs> That's not what this production staff felt.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so now to get the time they need, they must veer the Cylon fleet away from the Earth. And when they do that, they can now send some teams of trusted representatives down to begin that process of, of getting Earth up to speed technologically. But they mention that Earth is a warring planet, and there's certain factions on Earth that might be as dangerous to them as the Cylons. So the teams that they send down will be undercover, and they'll reach out to Earth's scientific community, those that are independent of politics, who they feel will use the technology wisely. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So at this point now, the show goes into a commercial break, so why don't we take this opportunity to take a commercial break ourselves, we'll pay some bills, and we'll be right back.
2: Monday, Monday, Monday. Come on down to the Mitchell's Footphone Hut Civic Arena for unicycle madness. Watch as 80 single-wheeled madmen put their equilibrium to the test in a thrill ride for the ages. Watch 25-year-old part-time barista Jimmy prove his disappointed parents wrong by jumping eight feet over a kiddie pool full of thumbtacks. Hey kids, don't like one of the competitors? Throw pennies at them. All proceeds will go to the local Chamber of Commerce's brass band salute to the cartoon Heathcliff in Town Hall. What's that? Still don't wanna go? What if I told you that the event ends with the DVD Frenzy? That's right. Our once suspended annual event is back. Bring in any used DVD or box set, and when the music stops, throw them randomly in the air. Everybody loves Raymond season three. Chuck okay. it. *Spider-Man* three. Chuck okay. it. burn Civil War. Chuck okay. it. You've never seen unicycle action like this, you idiot. It's all at Mitchell's Flip Phone Hut Civic Arena this Monday.
0: <laughs> and we're back. So when we return, we see Adama and Troy. They're walking down an empty corridor after the assembly. And Adama tells Troy, whom he does call Boxy here, that, uh, you know, because there's no Central Earth government... There's no one single leader that they can contact and negotiate with. Uh, There's large pockets of freedom, and those are what they must seek out. And so now, to help keep them from being discovered by the wrong people on Earth, Dr. Z has created some devices. And, oh man, do they use these devices? Oh, (laughs) yes. So, we now cut to Dr. Z. He's addressing a, a team of men in brown suits, standing in line, and he tells them that they will be equipped with Language Tron translators that are filled with as many terms and customs as they could perceive from broadcasts.
1: Now, incidentally, I should point out those aren't just brown suits. <laughs> actually, this uh, this abominate, I mean, show was <laughs> uh, was actually nominated for a primetime Emmy. It was uh, it was nominated for, for a primetime Emmy for best costume design. Admittedly, not one of the Prime time, prime time Emmys, but still, it was a nomination. So you know, please respect
0: the suit. Yeah, I was surprised to see that. You know, of course they'll take it. They can now claim that this was a, an Emmy-nominated series. Uh, but for for the leather jackets, that's a very nice. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> So Dr. Z in the scene, he goes on to say that there will be significant gaps in their knowledge, even though they have these language-tron translators, these wrist computers that will help them define terms that they don't understand, or, or learn things uh, from, about the Earth you know, that they, they don't understand. So uh, despite this, they'll have gaps in their knowledge. So to counteract this, he's providing them with uh, devices that Generate a nuclear field that will render them invisible for a short period of time. Because you know, if you don't know the answer to something, just run away. Hide. <laughs> <They> materialize.
1: <laughs> uh, if the answer isn't in your Apple Watch.
2: Yeah. Just,
1: just hide. Although I'm actually being unfair. The uh, they're like an Apple Watch, only not quite as uh, bulky and clunky.
0: Right. Right. <laughs> So Dr. Z now demonstrates this device. He aims it at one of the ships, rendering it completely invisible. And he reassures the group, no, it's not gone, it's still there. And Adama goes even further, throwing just some pieces of metal at it, not once, but twice. So yeah, okay, we get it, we get it.
1: Well, people were obviously potentially distracted by the spotlight on Dr. Z, because apparently he has a personal spotlight to illuminate him from above, wherever he goes, to to convey the the message that he is somehow celestially, transcendently smarter than them.
0: (laughs) So, the team is now told they can only use this in life or death situations. Well, that's all we get in this series, because they use it all the time. So Adama tells them that the teams, they'll be scattered around the Earth, arriving only in unpopulated zones, and then their navigational computrons will guide them the rest of the way towards populated areas. And uh, this briefing now ends, and we cut back to the ship's exterior.
1: You know, for, for, for a more advanced society, you'd think that they could have uh, gone with, you know, instead of navigational computron, maybe just GPS.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> Something a little bit easier...
0: <laughs> no cutting inside the ship now we see crew members they're very busy in front of computer panels and uh, we see troy and dylan now boarding their ships they're called vipers these ships mm-hmm. too. and uh now they get ready for their mission and, and how do you like these helmets steve
1: yeah they're sort of uh egyptian looking yeah and and i believe that's sort of intentional because uh, kind of a, a common cultural theme that, that unites all of the colonies. Uh, sort of like in Stargate, everything's uh, Egyptian.
0: Huh, interesting.
1: Apparently Egyptians uh, got around.
0: I guess. And there's track lighting inside those helmets, too. I don't think we see it in this episode, but the next one, we do. <laughs> yes, indeed. Indeed. <laughs> So we see them get into these ships, and they press buttons that say things like Turbo 1, Turbo 2, and Turbo 3, so you know that they mean business. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so we see these two Vipers, really like space fighter jets, those of Troy and Dylan. They're blasting out of their docks like torpedoes into open space, and one of them presses a button with the word Turbo on it, and it makes it go even faster, because you can obviously never have enough Turbo. <laughs>
1: <laughs> needs more turbo, but but at this point I'm sitting here watching it, saying, "Okay, now if the scenario is as specified, and the problem is is that the Earth is technologically inferior and needs to be brought up to speed quickly, who would you send to achieve this mission? You know, clearly, instead of sending you know teams of scientists and uh, anthropologists, you know, via you know transports." No, you're going to you're going to send fighter pilots and fighters.
0: yeah, exactly.
1: because they're not needed with the fleet. Or <laughs> no, We'll just land them and leave them behind. <laughs> yeah. we'll we'll just trust the the average fighter pilot, say, yeah, he's, he's a combination scientist anthropologist
0: right, right. He yeah.
1: He didn't need his fighter anyway.
0: <laughs> so, now, they're, they're talking to one another on, on the ships as they're flying towards the Earth, and, and one says to the other, You know, this place we drew for a landing sounds exciting. The United States of America. A- and the other one replies, You know, I kind of like the sound of the place that Kip got, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. I've always liked unions. It's not often you get the entire population of a continent's women to choose from. I think we're going to have one fine time. What in the world does that mean?
1: It's just a series of non-sequiturs just spit out there. <laughs>
0: it's like, what? Alright, so yeah, I get it. They don't know the difference between, you know, the U.S. and the USSR during, you know, this Cold War time of 1980. Ha ha ha. And then what was the whole thing about, he likes unions, and then he, he, <laughs> it's not often you get to choose women from the entire population of a continent? What? What? <laughs> What in the world were they writing? Oh, wow.
1: Well. Well, Gary Larson was, at at the time, he was, uh, I'm sorry, Glenn
0: Larson. Yes, this wasn't the far side. He <laughs> might as well have been. <laughs>
1: it really felt it at times. He was actually writing his script. He wasn't even in Los Angeles or in Hollywood at the time. He was actually almost literally phoning it in. He <laughs> He was writing from his condo overlooking the beach in Hawaii. Oh, wow. Yeah, it just sends scripts in. <laughs> so this is from an interview with uh, with Chris Bunch, who was one of the uh, story editors uh-huh. uh, for the show. Now, the story editor's uh, responsibility, according to Wikipedia, includes uh, various duties, including you know, developing stories with the writers, ensuring that the scripts are suitable for production, they allegedly work closely with the writer on each draft of the story and script, giving feedback on the quality of the work, suggesting improvements that can be made, while also ensuring the practical issues like continuity and correct running time are adhered to. Mm -hmm. Well, from the interview with uh, Chris Bunch, his comment about uh, Glenn Larson's uh, script writing was that Glenn has a wonderful habit of rolling paper into the typewriter, whacking away, and sooner or later coming up with a plot. In this case, he came up with a plot uh, at about page 56. So I simply wrote on and at page 62 typed, end of part one. <laughs> <laughs> so this turkey ran three parts before he finished. It didn't matter. No one was watching the dog anyway. Anyway, anyway, we sat in our trailer getting paid astronomical amounts of money and doing dangerous drugs. And every now and then somebody would say, hey, you hear Glenn script just came in? Yeah, so what? We didn't even read it. Since, of course, Larson wasn't about to ask our advice, and we surely weren't going to volunteer it.
0: Oh, my goodness. <laughs>
1: now, remember, these are the guys that are responsible for reviewing the script and making sure it all makes sense. They admit that they were, instead, they were just doing drugs. Wow. He was a stork editor, he was not reading the scripts.
0: And where was this interview?
1: This uh, interview was conducted by Battlestar Zone, which is a uh, fan club sort of publication.
0: Wow, that's amazing. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so back to the episode. Troy and Dylan are flying in. They descend into the Earth's atmosphere, into the clouds, and they've noticed that they've been picked up by a primitive tracking device. And from here, we cut to stock footage of a spinning radar dish, and then to a U.S. military control center. And uh, we see a general, I'm presuming he's a general, he had some stars on his shoulder. He's at his desk, and he's informed that Albuquerque has detected two unidentified flying objects. Because, of course, if there's UFOs, they have to be spotted in New Mexico.
1: Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Now, after being told that they are flying at supersonic speeds, the the general picks up a giant red phone and asks for the president. And we next get a scene of a pair of American fighter jets quickly being fueled and taking off as Wild Blue Yonder plays. You know, really, okay, we get it. It's the Air Force. (laughs) They're intervening. (laughs) So now cutting to Dylan and Troy, we see that the two jets have popped up on their radar, and now they make these evasive maneuvers. So back at the military base, the general is told that the UFOs have definitely violated American airspace, and this information is relayed to the president and they tell him they must assume they're hostile. So from there, the president authorizes the jets to take out Dylan and Troy's Viper ships. Oh, and in case you're wondering now, if the general actually does hang up the phone after the call, don't worry. The scene lingers just enough afterwards so you can see him slowly put back the receiver. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching this, I'm like, all right, cut, cut, cut. Oh, oh okay, well, you can show us. We believe you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's very, very European direction.
0: Yes. So, now cutting to the jets, the the two pilots they first attempt to make radio contact. They say, "Attention, alien aircraft! You have violated American airspace. Do you read?" And uh, instead of replying, Troy and Dylan opt for some more turbo, <laughs> and they quickly pull away. <laughs> Needs more turbo. The the pilots, the American pilots are stunned because, quote, the Russians don't have anything that fast. Well, okay, do you think they're aliens or Russians? (laughs) So now before they can get away, the jets, they lock on target and they fire. And Troy and Dylan, they they fly off and they disappear now. They're using this device uh, and they escape fire uh, to the jet pilots bewilderment. You know, they say, how can it lock on target if it isn't there? And, uh, you know, invisibility doesn't mean out of existence. Those missiles should have hit, but not in this case. (laughs) (laughs) Gobsmacking. So, they now reappear once the coast is clear, and, uh, you know, we get the dialogue, those guys are good. Yeah, a little too good. And they make their landing. So, where do they land? Well, we next cut to the middle of an open grass field. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> where Troy and Dylan's Vipers have landed in broad daylight.
1: I think this is uh, also the, the same field where in uh, one of the Star Trek movies where they landed the Klingon scout ship. <laughs> <laughs> lots, lots of ships get cloaked in this field.
0: <laughs> Evidently. <laughs> so, n- now they exit their ships and they roll out their motorcycles.
1: Which, first of all, uh, these being fighter crafts, Yes. Where where do they have space for cargo?
0: Yeah, really.
1: <laughs> just just a minor point. But these 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 are motorcycles.
0: Oh my goodness! It, well, they're they're very futuristic looking motorcycles. They do not look like anything. I mean, they look like some of the motorcycles today, some of the more modern designs. But back then, certainly uh, not like anything you'd see.
1: These are these are what you would call star motorbikes.
0: Yes. Yes. Space bikes. Space bikes. Uh, We're told that they are modeled on the vehicles they saw in their Earth transmissions. Uh, I I like this scene here. Before they leave, Dylan makes a jaunty run back to his ship. He opens the cockpit, he flips some switches, and slowly the Viper disappears, and he makes a jaunty run back to his motorcycle. It's like, why didn't you do that from the beginning? (laughs) Now, I'm guessing that Troy had already done this, because he didn't, he didn't run out there, and his ship was already cloaked.
1: His run isn't as jaunty.
0: No, no, not at all. Dylan, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> so now the two of them head for the office of Dr. Mortensen at the Pacific Institute of Technology. Uh, they're purposely staying off the highway, although that's what they said they're going to do. <laughs> They, they because even though Dr. Z designed their motorcycles to look like Earth motorcycles, uh, he mentioned he designed them to look as close as possible and uh, yeah, they're very noticeable. Yes. now did you I- notice here, Steve, when they take off one of them gets dangerously close to a tree?
1: No, I didn't notice that i was I was too uh, <laughs> I was too much in awe of the fact that after just saying, yeah, it's probably best to avoid major arteries <laughs> that they cut that they they cut to footage of them riding their motorcycle, I'm sorry, star bikes yes. on the on the Golden State freeway. Yes, yes. <laughs> How much more major do you get than that?
2: <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, and so they're heading down the Golden State freeway, and they're trying to blend in, but of course, there's no way. And they're getting all kinds of strange looks from motorists. Troy assumes while the weird looks are are not from the futuristic motorcycles or sorry oh. space motorcycles, uh, nor their ancient Egyptian inspired helmets, it's clearly from the clothing. It's it's their brown jackets that are getting all the looks. Uh,
1: it's it's from their primetime Emmy Award nominated <laughs> 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 jackets. People are looking, saying those are an
0: yeah, those things are turning heads. Oh, yes. So as they continue, a biker gang now enters the freeway, and they are very interested in seeing Troy and Dylan's bikes, and they go up to surround them to get a closer look. Now, there's actually some star power in this gang. These are actually probably the only two I really recognized in this show. One biker, he's played by the late Brian James, he's better known as Leon, the uh, replicant from Blade Runner, he's been in a whole bunch of movies. Uh, oh. he, he drives up to them and he he shouts out asking what they're riding. And, you know, innocent enough, it's they're motorcycle enthusiasts, they want to know, hey, what's that bike? Huh? He's un- accompanied on the other side by another biker with a long beard played by Mickey Jones. Uh, he's a character actor who's just been in everything he's still working today probably he's his most famous role was uh, the auto mechanic in national lampoon's vacation he's the one that uh, when kark griswold is is stranded needs to know how much the car repair is going to cost he's the one that says well how much you got <laughs> so anyway these two guys they're not too hostile i mean they're they're imposing figures they're played by big guys but they just kind of want to know what bike those are huh? So anyway, Troy and Dylan, they refuse to pull over to talk, and now they're deliberately ignoring these guys, and the bikers start to get angry. So instead of blowing their cover as technologically advanced space travelers, they decide to say, Surprise! Pull on levers that deploy wings, and fly their bikes off into the sky. (laughs) Causing all of the bikers to crash horrifically below them.
1: They're flying motorbikes.
0: They fly. <laughs> Little stubby
1: wings. Uh. <laughs> that's that's one of the James Bond moments.
0: <laughs> oh, my goodness. Roger Moore era James Bond moments. Yes. <laughs> it's unbelievable. It's like He just said, you know, we don't want to blow our cover. So let's yell surprise, pull on a lever, and fly off in, into the atmosphere.
1: yelled surprise, so cover restored. Yeah. <laughs>
0: And uh, these poor bikers, I mean, they're, they're tumbling down the hill. Uh, to, you know, they, they're definitely crashing. No, oh, this is a high-speed wipeout. Yeah. I mean, Troy and Dylan already causing mayhem. <laughs> so, from here now, they, they change into more normal-looking clothing, and they park their bikes at what they want us to believe is a different grass field from the one we saw earlier. <laughs> <laughs> it, isn't, it definitely is not. <laughs> Ugh. And so they flip switches or press buttons or whatever that render these bikes invisible as they look for a more inconspicuous ride into the city. And now from here, we cut to commercial. So when we return, we now see a lady named Jamie Hamilton, played here by Robin Douglas, and she's pulling up to a service station in a yellow convertible Ford Mustang with Billy Joel's My Life blasting on the radio. <laughs> For a moment as I was watching this, I was really kind of hoping this show would mercifully turn into Bosom Buddies. (laughs) That's the first time
1: I would ever think something like that. But that would actually be justified in this
0: instance. Desperate times. (laughs) But alas, we continue with the story. Uh, She she gets her car filled with gas, and she notices uh, Troy and Dylan are attempting to use a payphone, uh, shouting at it. And boy, this was a funny scene. Oh, yeah. I love it. Anytime they, they want to let us know that they're trying to be funny, we get that music that's like. <laughs> it makes it funnier. Oh, yeah. It's priming
1: the pump, it's like an opening act.
0: <laughs> so, Jamie next uses the phone, and the two men learn all about dollars and cents with hilarious results. So, now Jamie, she can't make the phone call, so she has to leave to get change. Uh, She has to actually call the United Broadcasting Company, or UBC. They are a television channel at which she's scheduled for a job interview. So, basically, this scene is a little confusing, too. Uh, They hear from Jamie about a thing called a credit card, and they decide from this to aim their wrist computer at the payphone and that makes the phone spew out quarters like a slot machine.
1: Yeah, I think they're trying to hack the phone, and it didn't go quite right.
0: There's a lot of hack on the screen, that's for sure. <laughs>
1: yes. And, and incidentally, throughout, they refer to the money as denominations. Yes. Currency. <laughs> in a very stilted fashion to remind us they're not from here.
0: Right, exactly.
1: Until they suddenly start slipping into calling it money.
0: Right, right once the point is made. They adapt quickly. Yes. So, Jamie returns and here here are these two guys in the phone booth, there's money pouring out of the machine and they're down on their hands and knees picking them up. So, Jamie returns, she thinks that they stole the coins, which they did, and she tells them, "Hey, take a hike." Now Jamie now calls UBC, and after that, they walk up to her kind of menacingly, really. And they're asking her for a ride to the Pacific Institute of Technology, where they wish to see Dr. Mortensen. And so, now, even though this girl basically saw these two guys in leather jackets rob a payphone, lie about it, then ask for a ride, she's like, oh, maybe I had jumped to conclusions. And then she says, but you have to admit, it did look a little odd. (laughs) A little? (laughs) Jamie, you're gonna die! What are you doing? (laughs) How did you make it to L.A.? But, of course, she does give them a ride, so we immediately cut to them pulling up at the Pacific Institute of Technology, where, incidentally, there's the large anti-nuke protest that's uh, currently in progress. Jamie now explains to Troy and Dylan that Dr. Mortensen had invented an entirely new type of nuclear power plant, And these protesters are upset with the lack of planning and safety at the other, old type of power plants. So, why are they protesting an entirely new type? Maybe it's the solution.
1: Uh, Apparently the nuclear industry was a sponsor of the show. (laughs) They were looking to discredit (laughs) (laughs) anti-nuclear activists. It was a very hot issue back then.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: Remember, this was just after the uh, Three Mile Island incident.
0: Yeah. So here comes this doctor with, well, maybe I got something new that we can use instead. No! Because of the old stuff. Boo! <laughs> so, Troy and Dylan, they they now thank Jamie and they leave, but not before she tells them uh, that strangers have to stick together, and if they ever want to get in touch, she'll hopefully be working at UBC. So, man, they became <laughs> fast friends on the ride over.
1: <laughs> she, she has to roll the text Full of uh, full of indigents and hitchhikers she's <laughs> met along the way.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so now, looking at this protest, uh, Troy tells Dylan that they could turn Doctor Mortensen into a hero before the day is over. So we next cut to Doctor Mortensen looking down at the protest from his window, asking things like, "How do you make them understand?" And we learn here that Doctor Mortensen is played by Robert Reed. <laughs> Best known as Mike Brady from the Brady Bunch. Basically, Dr. Z's uncle.
1: (laughs) It's it's another Brady Bunch throwback. So this is in the post-Brady Bunch era, the Robert Reed, permed hair, and uh, moustached era.
0: Yes, yes. Anyway, we get here a scene of Dr. Mortensen, along with his assistant, Dorothy Carlyle, having what, I guess the show's creator was intended to be a deep, dramatic scene weighing the merits and morality of nuclear power. In fact, we even get here, of course, this is more education, such facts like, 77 years ago, man couldn't even fly, and it took 66 years between the Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk to the moon landing. This is going on and on. Reed was really pushing for that Emmy.
1: (laughs) But he's have been in costuming.
0: Yeah, he lost out to that leather jacket. (laughs) So finally, this scene is broken up, literally. Uh, There's rocks that are being thrown by the protesters through the window. Now, Mortensen is the one that actually leaves to get someone to clean up the shards of glass. Uh, But he doesn't want Dorothy to overact and call the police. But as he does leave the office, she immediately calls security to call for the police. So meanwhile, downstairs, Troy and Dylan enter the building and they tell the security guard that's sitting there that they're there to see Dr. Mortensen. So the guard refers to his list and doesn't see them there. Now Troy takes out a handheld device and freezes the guard in place with it. Just long enough for them to get onto the elevator.
1: Incidentally, this is a device that maybe should have been briefed on.
0: Yeah, really. (laughs) So now the guard snaps out of it once the two are gone, and he gets on the phone and calls uh, other security? Calls for backup. Yeah, and... So he tells him, we got trouble, and from here we cut to commercial. Now when we return, we see that Mortensen's assistant Dorothy, she's now back at work typing away at her typewriter, as if the angry mob throwing things through the window is no longer an issue. (laughs) The typing must go on. Yeah, unless she's writing some strongly worded notes, she's about to drop down. Troy and Dylan then enter the room, and she asks if they are there to clean up the mess, but they say they're actually there to see Dr. Mortensen about a life-or-death situation. And so Dorothy keeps telling them, well, it's not a good time, but they happen to notice on a screen on the computer, there's a a huge complicated formula regarding nuclear degeneration. And uh, they remark how Mortensen's on the right track, and Dorothy remarks, well, this whole thing is a very bad joke because there aren't even three people in the world who could understand the formula. So there aren't even three. So two? <laughs> it's an estimate. <laughs> it's, it's a ballpark. <laughs> <laughs> so just then, Dorothy gets a call from security alerting them to Troy and Dylan's intrusion, and they're secretly trying to tell her to stay calm and move away from the door. You know, just uh, don't let them... Know that uh, that we're alerting you to this, and so Troy and Dylan can immediately sense something's up. So they decide they gotta leave, but before they do, Troy edits a line in Doctor Mortensen's formula and tells Dorothy to have the doctor read it and then contact them through Jamie at UBC.
1: <laughs> because of course she's now an answering service.
0: Right, right, and assuming Jamie actually did get the job.
1: And, and assuming that you'd even acknowledged them after the
0: fact. Right. A lot of assumptions. <laughs> and so as they leave, Troy tells Dylan, all the whole place is under siege, and they'd never be allowed to see Dr. Mortensen now. Uh, but they said that, you know, editing the formula in that way was their best move because nobody on Earth could have done it. So now as they step out of the door, they're confronted by... Uh, is this Barney Fife? <laughs>
1: This is the, this is the, the most trigger-happy campus security <laughs> I've ever seen. <laughs> you know, stop or I'll shoot. Yeah. This is kind of extreme for a campus cop.
0: Yeah, uh, two guys <laughs> that are walking away slowly from a situation.
1: Yeah, you know, clearly, you know, guns blazing. Teach him a lesson.
0: Dylan was going to take something out of his pocket. I assume it's that device that freezes people.
1: Yes, it's his... Paralysis, Banaka.
0: <laughs> but, uh, but Troy tells him to stand down, which is probably a good idea considering how trigger-happy this, this uh, <laughs> security guard is. Probably wouldn't have ended well. So <laughs> Trespassing. <laughs> punishable by death. Yeah, really. So that's all we get of this scene. I'm not sure if it's the syndication cut that we saw, Or if this is just how the episode was edited, but immediately it cuts from there. Yeah. So we cut back upstairs where Dorothy shuts off the monitor that had the formula on it. Just as Dr. Mortensen returns from, I guess, his two-hour search for a dustpan. (laughs) (laughs) Which he has returned without. (laughs) Really? Yeah, nothing. He didn't get anybody to clean it up or anything. I don't know. So Dorothy informs him, oh yeah, some of the demonstrators got into the lab, and so now we cut to Troy and Dylan being led into a police car through a crowd of protesters. Now back upstairs, uh, Dorothy tells Mortensen about his formula being ruined, and so Mor- Mortensen turns on the uh, the formula there, the, the monitor back on, and he's reading this new revision to his work, and he dramatically removes the glasses he wore just for this reaction. <laughs> He didn't have glasses before this, (laughs) but he just had, he had to have the glasses on so he could just pull them down slowly.
1: (laughs) It's, it's, it's a subtle effect, you know, like, like the general hanging up the phone.
0: Yes. And here we get this line, oh my goodness. My dear, these hoodlums, as you call them, may be as important to mankind as the coming of the Messiah. (laughs) It's like, oh brother. Okay. <laughs> you know, Glenn Larson treated himself with a ring of pineapple after he wrote that line. <laughs> I was
1: say, he was on his third martini when he wrote that one. I'm sorry,
0: my time, my time. Yes, yes, it's tropical. <laughs> And on that line of Emmy bait, we again cut to commercial. So when we return, we see the United Broadcasting Company building, where Jamie arrives for her scheduled meeting with an executive named Mister Brooks. Now, if you notice here, behind Mr. Brooks' secretary, we see a sign on the wall that reads, United Broadcasting Station. So, either one, I guess. <laughs> Later on, there in I think the second episode, there are vans that say United Broadcasting Station as well. So, I guess uh, both are interchangeable for the purposes of this series.
1: Well, I don't think you're supposed to be uh, paying attention to that. You're supposed to be focusing on our Mr. Brooks. <laughs> A very obscure reference.
0: I did not understand. I didn't get it. <laughs>
1: that, there was an old uh, an old radio program in the 40s, I believe it was, called Armis Brooks.
0: No. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, As I said, it's obscure.
0: Yeah, now I feel dumb.
1: <laughs> yeah, well... The, I'm sorry. You watched this entire show, and it's only now that you feel dumb.
2: Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, had
0: a cerebral mutation!
1: I mean, let me just toss in another quote from one of the uh, from one of the story editors, please. This one, this one from Alan Cole. Let's face it: Galactica 1980 was an awful show. <laughs> it deserved to be dropped. At the time, I remember that I posted a big sign on my office door with the number 13 on it. We had been told if the ratings dropped to 13 or below, that we'd be cut. Every morning, my then-partner, Chris Bunch, and I would chant, Come on, 13! (laughs) 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 That's how bad the show
0: is. Oh, man. So back to the episode here, as Jamie is waiting uh, at UBC for Mr. Brooks, the secretary gets this call from the police. They're looking for Jamie. And so when Jamie answers the phone, we see it's Dylan on the other end. I guess they're making their their one phone call.
1: (laughs) So it really wasn't the police calling. (laughs) It was it was someone named Dylan.
0: Yeah, it, it, that was kind of confusing, but okay, whatever. Maybe a, maybe a police officer said, okay, uh, now you can fig- uh, make the call. I don't know.
1: they figured out how to work a payphone now.
0: Yeah, yeah, they're learning. Yeah. <laughs> so they ask Jamie to contact Dr. Mortensen for them. And just as he asks this, Jamie happens to look over at a TV screen where there is footage of Troy and Dylan's arrest being shown. And uh, the announcer also mentions that the two also beat up a security guard, sending him to the hospital. (laughs) So what happened to Barney Fife?
1: (laughs) It's, you know, some in their terrible binocchio of doom.
0: I guess. Even though they beat up the security guard, I guess they still didn't get away, because they immediately got arrested.
1: Uh, I I think they're talking about the, the one that they froze. He's the one they beat up. You think so? Yeah, not Barney Fife. Okay. They went peacefully with Barney.
0: (laughs) Uh, Either way, I mean, we'll never know. and I'm fine with that. (laughs) (laughs) Now that Jamie sees this footage of them being arrested and hearing all the stuff that they did, she calls them terrorist chauvinists and hangs up the phone. So meanwhile, Mr. Brooks' secretary is standing there for this whole phone call and decides to call Brooks herself, telling him, come in person because we have a problem. I don't know why, but this is what happens. Now next, Dr. Mortensen calls UBC asking for Jamie. Remember, Troy and Dylan told Dorothy they can be contacted through Jamie at UBC. Uh, lots of phone calls in this scene. She's operating a
1: switchboard
0: <laughs> essentially.
1: This is quite an interview.
0: Oh, this is the worst job interview ever. So, Jamie tells Dr. Mortensen that she had no idea that these two men were going to be any trouble, and Dr. Mortensen is like, no, 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 you misunderstand. He is very grateful for their visit. And he was even hoping that she is one of them as well. Honest, doctor,
1: most of the men I pick up are much, much nicer than that. <laughs>
0: So Jamie's just trying to deny, deny, deny that she knows anything about them. So just then, Mr. Brooks arrives, and he is shocked to find out that Dr. Mortensen has called their office, because evidently he despises the media, or at least that's what we're told.
1: Which makes him unique, how?
0: (laughs) (laughs) And uh, his secretary clarifies, no, Mortensen isn't calling for us, he's calling for her. uh, The new reporter, or at least she hopes... So Mr. Brooks now runs over to Jamie, and he tells her, well, if you want that reporter job, you have to agree to meet with Mortensen. Okay. <laughs> Quite the job interview. They don't know any of her credentials or anything. All they know is she got this phone call after she stepped in, and uh, she is somehow linked to a crime. But, uh, hey, if you can get our, our cameras over there, then you got the job. <laughs> So what Brooks does now is he arranges for a camera team to accompany Jamie. And really, despite not understanding what's happening, he tells her, you know, if you can pull this off, you have a job. Not only a job, a job for life. So they really want to get Mortensen on camera.
1: As best I can tell, he's supposed to be a sort of Stephen Hawking figure.
0: Yes, yeah.
1: You know, that prominent a scientist that he's... He's made a name for himself in the pop culture.
0: Yeah, and uh, of course Pacific Institute of Technology, or PIT, the PIT, (laughs) I guess, (laughs) (laughs) is of course the West Coast analog to, you know, what we would think of MIT being. Yes. So we next cut to the police station, where Troy and Dylan are placed in the holding tank with uh, an Otis the Town Drunk type.
1: (laughs) Oh, yes. Oh, who could have predicted this? (laughs)
0: <laughs> A lot of borrowing from Andy Griffith. <laughs> and here we get this great plan to escape from their jail cell. Uh, they use those cloaking devices to disappear, and this makes the drunk guy freak out. And so when the officer runs to see what the problem is, he opens the door and walks into the cell. Of course. And some great acting uh, by the officer here as he pretends to be kicked by this invisible force. Oh! <laughs> And now the door to the cell slams behind him.
1: I haven't seen such convincing acting since Gilligan dropped a coconut on the skipper's foot.
0: (laughs) Oh, man. It's just, it's terrible. And of course, now in voiceover, we hear them talking to each other, you know, because they're invisible. (laughs) Where'd they go? (laughs) This is, why did he open the cell door? I mean, you can see that they're not in there.
1: Don't adjust your sets. They're invisible.
0: (laughs) So then another officer runs over, and the the first officer that's now trapped asks, Why'd you do that? And the other officer replies, Why'd I do what? And on that hilarious bit of comedy, we now cut to commercial once again.
1: (laughs) Oh, this is painful.
0: (laughs) This is the worst. (laughs) It really is, Steve.
1: It's just god-awful. I mean, I really... Hold out the stops with this one.
0: <laughs> this is Battlestar Galactica, and we haven't seen anything space related in almost an hour. <laughs>
1: oh. <laughs> and yet this is the most space related of them all. I
0: yes. Think. And so when we return from commercial here, we see a boy playing fetch with his dog in a grass field where Troy and Dylan had, you know, parked their vipers and cloaked them. But one finally reappears and the boy sees it and yells, Golly! Shazam! (laughs) Little Jim Neighbors in there. (laughs) So the boy runs to tell his father about the discovery, and as he does, the picture freezes, and we get the words "To be continued," ending the episode on just an amazing cliffhanger.
1: Blessedly, I punched out at
0: this point. I bailed. (laughs) I was done. I could not. I am devoted oh, no. to to bringing the bringing the listeners the full story. I
1: didn't. I did not want to watch. Look, there is nothing about this that was wanted by anyone except for Lorne Green, who apparently was initially heartbroken that he wasn't going to be involved in the project, and so as a way of a personal favor, when Larson roped him into this. He wasn't even going to be in it. I guess he was going to be dead too. Wow. <laughs> but this this is the show that should not have been made. Yes. Uh, and I'm not just saying this from, you know, from, you know, just as criticism. It literally should not have been made because from the from the interview of Chris Bunch from uh, Battlestar Zone, he said that, well, since Alan and I were unfortunate enough to be story execs on Galactic in 1980, anything involving accuracy on that show was foredoomed. Now, incidentally, this is from one of the guys whose job it is to ensure, you know, continuity, <laughs> okay? She said, anything involving accuracy on that show was foredoomed. First, Glenn did not want to do the show, and Universal did not want to do the show. ABC threatened them into it for some unknown reason. Larson, as he's in the habit of doing, whored for the money with a bad attitude. <laughs> and we were literally blackmailed into the gig because of our ostensible expertise in science fiction. To which, in a separate interview, Alan Cole added, we were blackmailed by Peter Thompson, the honcho at Universal, and becoming story editors on the show. We didn't want to do it, because we made more money freelancing. But Thompson said we'd never work at Universal again unless we took the job. So essentially, nobody wanted to do this show. (laughs) the production staff... Hated it. They thought it was awful. They didn't try. They cheered for it to fail. The, the studio cheered for it to fail because they were losing millions on making this. The network insisted because of the, the letter-writing campaign, but then quickly lost interest. It's a show that never should have been made. Unbelievable. <laughs> and so that's why I bailed at this point, because I thought... The story editors were ready to bail at this point.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm under no contractual obligation to watch the rest of this.
0: No, no, nor would I ask you to do, do such Why a thing. Why am
1: I sticking around? <laughs> Aside from it being my idea.
0: Right, right, yeah. You're the one that suggested this, but but I uh, I decided to, to go do some digging and find out the full story here, so... Uh, let me give you parts two and three for those that really want to know how this story arc concludes. Okay. So now, as I mentioned before, this is really a three part pilot. It's sort of a a TV movie that's broken in pieces. So the episode that we watched aired on January 27th and viewers would get part two on February 3rd, then part three on February 10th. And uh, even episodes four and five were a multi-part episode seven and eight was a multi-part episode. But, uh, so, Let's get part two and part three, uh, summarized here. Uh, Just, I'll read this to you and just kind of save you two hours of your life and briefly wrap up the story. (laughs) (laughs) So basically now the kid tells his father about the ships and they contact the police. Uh, Jamie, Dr. Mortensen, Troy and Dylan all meet up and they all take off together to avoid the UBC cameras and a car chase ensues. Dylan, for some reason, decides he's going to take the wheel of a car, even though he doesn't know how to drive, and they crash into a store. But they're all okay, and after turning themselves invisible, Troy, Dylan, and Jamie go up to the Galactica. So the kid, his dad, and the police see the Vipers fly away, but they think, oh, those are just shooting stars. So after meeting with Commander Adama, they find out that while they were away, Xavier. Remember the Xavier from earlier? He shows up again. Oh, he definitely shows up again. He wasn't pleased with this idea of trying to introduce advanced technology to 1980s Earth. So he decided to use a time machine invented by Dr. Z to go back into Earth's past and speed up the technological process. So that's that story. Whoa, whoa,
2: whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. Wait
1: a minute. Why not just use the time machine to go back into the colony's past and be ready for the, the Cylon surprise attack?
0: Because evidently you have to be in the right location, and Doctor Z was born on the way to Earth, so that would require hey. them going back to where the Cylons were. And so, I mean, that's that's the only thing I could think of. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, well, listen, listen, listen. <laughs> <laughs> so where does Xavier go? Of course, nineteen forty-four Nazi Germany. Oh, really? <laughs> So Troy, Dylan, and Jamie go back in time after him, and upon arriving, they encounter the German Luftwaffe, who end up not attacking, believing the Vipers to be experimental German aircraft. So they land the Vipers, and Troy, Dylan, and Jamie witness a pilot being ejected out of a downed B-17. This is a, a man named Major Stockwell, and he's there to stop the launch of an experimental German rocket. Stockwell? (laughs) Might as well have been. (laughs) So, the four of them make their way to the rocket test site, but on the way, they rescue a young girl from a train bound for Auschwitz. Of course. So, Stockwell has a contact that owns a bookstore, so they bring the girl there, but of course now the SS shows up, and they have to use their invisibility to escape. So, they vow that they'll find that train and, and help those people later on. But right now they have to look for the rocket. So upon reaching the rocket, they discover Xavier is overseeing the rocket launch, pretending to be a Nazi-sympathizing British official. And of course, they find out that this experimental rocket uses futuristic colonial technology. So as the rocket is destroyed, we see Dylan destroys it with his laser. Upon this failure, the Nazis accuse Xavier of being a spy. So, Troy and Dylan, disguised as German soldiers, take Xavier away. They get him back into their custody. So, with that taken care of, Troy and Dylan go back and track down the Auschwitz-bound train and fire at it with their flying motorcycles, and all on board are rescued.
1: That's <laughs> answering the question, what what would have happened if uh, Eisenhower had had flying motorbikes?
0: I mean, this is just the worst writing ever. <laughs> What in the world was he writing? Wow. So
1: I, I guess they were dangerous
0: drugs. Oh, my goodness. This is like, I, don't, I have no words for this. <laughs> <laughs> so, Troy, Dylan, and Jamie, they're able to go back to 1980 because it just so happens to be D-Day. And the Nazis are all busy at Normandy so uh before they leave of course Xavier escapes so when they return Troy and Dylan are wanted by the police and the military seizes their vipers because that kid had you know described it to the police so Troy and Dylan are able to track down the kid who meanwhile has been getting beat up by bullies for telling tall tales about seeing spaceships (laughs) and so they make a deal with him the kid tells them where the vipers are And in return, they will lend him one of their wrist computers. Which they do, and the kid uses it to torment his bullies.
2: (laughs) Uh,
1: So basically, there's just this whole subplot just plunked in gratuitously for no reason.
0: Yeah, yeah. So now, meanwhile, Xavier tracks down Dr. Mortensen and introduces himself, oh, as one of the other visitors from space... And he tries to sell him on the idea of going back to change history. Now Jamie calls Dr. Mortensen to warn him that somebody might be coming. uh, But now Xavier pulls a gun on him. Uh, Troy, Dylan, and Jamie are able to steal back the Vipers. Confront Xavier and they end up fighting. But Xavier (laughs) takes off into space with Troy, Dylan, and Jamie right behind them. But they fire on him too late and Xavier escapes into a time warp. Ah, oh, so close. So close. So now the three board the Galactica once again, where Commander Adama tells them that Xavier has traveled back in time to colonial America, and from there, Troy and Dylan get their next mission. <laughs> Just when you think this show can't get any worse. <laughs> uh,
1: apparently his, having failed with the Nazis... He's going to his fallback plan of giving the Pilgrims uh, rocket technology.
0: (laughs) I'm afraid to watch those episodes. I don't don't know, is there going to be a Ben Franklin, or yeah, how far back are we going?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, the time travel thing was supposedly pretty quickly introduced and abandoned. Yeah. So so I I think that may, in fact, just be a loose end. Who knows? I don't know. Maybe someone will be intrigued enough to go and actually watch (laughs) and find out. They can let you know.
0: Oh yeah, let me know because I ain't doing it. (laughs) Oh man,
1: (laughs) we suffered through this. I remembered it as being bad, but I didn't remember it as being this bad. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) it's without words. (laughs) Just without words.
0: Uh, now, Steve, did you watch the, uh, the modern day of Battlestar Galactica that they revived in the 2000s? I watched quite
1: a few episodes of it. I, I wouldn't say that I, you know, followed it faithfully, mm-hmm. but it happened to be on a lot of times when I was watching TV. And, and I'd, I'd take a look at it. Between the three, the original show, uh, Galactica 80, and uh, the reboot, the reboot was definitely the the best of the uh, three, but even that I was no fan of. I, I found that the uh, the reboot was it'd be if it was 50 minutes, it'd be 45 minutes of really basically boredom followed by five minutes of setting up a cliffhanger. <laughs> that, that would be a good cliffhanger. Yeah, yeah. But to get you to to tune in, you know, the the following week, and then you tune in to find out what happened, and then the first, like, three minutes turns out, oh, yeah, well, it wasn't that big a deal. Or, <laughs> oh, okay, well, yeah, all right, such and such happened. And we've all adjusted to it, and uh, none of the cliffhangers really seemed to pay off from, from my recollection. Yeah. Now, that said, it had real actors doing real acting, <laughs> It had real scripts written by real script writers. It had continuity. It had logic to it. So I mean, it was vastly, vastly better than this. Yeah, sure. So, I, so I don't, I don't want to be too critical of it, but it, even that, I found just meh.
0: <laughs> yeah, but some people love it. I personally, I have not seen one episode. So, yeah, that's uh, this is kind of my, unfortunately, my introduction into Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> <laughs> it's all all uphill from here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess you won't be watching any of the episodes. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I freed up some time for you then. Oh yeah. More time to watch Lance Link.
0: Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, and on that note, we should probably wrap this up. That'll pretty much do it for this episode of Hitting Play. As always, you can email us with your comments, suggestions, your nuclear degeneration formulas, whatever you got for us at HittingPlayShow at gmail.com, or you can talk to us on Twitter at Hitting Play. Now, Steve, do you have anything you want to plug? I'm just gobsmacked. Fair enough. Uh, If you listen to us on iTunes, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. It helps us out, and if you do, you will get a shout-out on the show. For Android users, we are available to stream and or download on Stitcher. We're available on TuneIn Radio and also the Google Play Music app. So check us out on those formats as well. All right, well, we have been Steven Scott, and this has been Hitting Play. Thank you so much for listening. Needs more turbo.